<clears throat> well, praise the Lord. Amen? Amen. What a joy and a privilege it is to hide ourselves in the Lord Most High and to sing praises to His holy name together, worship His name. Let's continue our worship now as we turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. And this morning, our text is going to be uh, verses 8 through 13. So I'd invite you to turn there. <clears throat> the lungs on that kid, Michael. The lungs on that kid. He should be up here preaching. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is God's word. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree, and I ate. Then Yahweh God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, if you've been with us over these past couple of weeks, you'll know we've waded into what we've called perhaps the most important section in all of Scripture, at least as it pertains to the experience of human life on this earth and why things are the way they are. The world we live in today is vastly different than it was at creation. The crisis and chaos which fills our globe was not a part of creation in its original state. The overwhelming majority of humanity has only known how to operate within a corrupted world system like ours. In fact, there were only two human beings, two humans, who ever got to experience life on this earth in its original glory, in its very good state. And those two humans were Adam and his wife Eve. Adam and Eve, who not only enjoyed life in a perfect environment, free from sorrow and sadness and sin and death, but who were also the, the only ones who experienced perfect fellowship with our perfect Creator. They're the only ones who had an unhindered, untainted, undefiled, unobstructed relationship with a holy God as they were the only ones outside of the Lord Jesus Christ himself who possessed perfectly sinless natures. And so far in Genesis, we've seen how this perfect God placed this perfect man and woman in a delightfully perfect garden, giving them every opportunity to not only survive, but to thrive in both the physical and spiritual realms, this Man and woman who had the opportunity to live forever in this delightfully perfect condition, but of their own volition, of their own free, yet still finite and limited wills, they chose instead uh, to form an allegiance with the creature, the serpent, Satan himself, rather than obeying the commands of their creator. And we're all dealing with the fallout of this even today. We're all still dealing with the consequences of the disobedience of mankind's representative in the garden. When Adam fell, we all fell with him. When Adam died spiritually in that garden, we all died with him. And just as Adam would go on to die physically, so shall we all go on to die physically, should the Lord tarry. Well, for our section today, we're going to meet back up with this man and woman uh, as they're Right in the thick of, for lack of a better term, getting busted. Uh, this past couple of weeks, we've seen the deception. Did God really say you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? You surely will not die. We've seen the direction, specifically the falling away. 
after they bought the lie, the fall of not only Adam, not only Eve, but every human being who would be born of his line, who would be born of his seed. We have all gone astray, each to our own way, as we all inherited Adam's now corrupted nature as he and Eve fell in this garden. And now, now we see the deflection, okay? And a, and a very disgraceful display the first display of man's fleeing from personal accountability. Man's first, but certainly not last, feeble attempt to make excuses for their own individual iniquity. These verses 8 through 13 are the account of Adam and Eve's woefully pathetic attempt to pass the buck. And honestly, it would be somewhat comical and amusing if it weren't so darn tragic. But that's what it is. It's a tragedy. Consider the, the implications this single act had on world history. All the suffering, the tremendous suffering in this world, the atrocities, the horrors, the strife, the abuse, the neglect, the emotional, spiritual, and physical torments experienced by billions and billions of men, women, and children throughout the history of the world can all be traced back to this moment. Think of the the magnitude of the repercussions of the falling of this man and this woman. And now consider their pathetic attempt to flee from their role in it. Okay? As they went from total delight to total depravity. We've already seen their eyes being opened in verse 7, the shameful realization that they were naked and the subsequent sewing together of fig leaves to cover their private parts. That's where we meet back up with them. They're cowering behind some trees. Look at verse 8. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay, so right from the get-go, right from the start, I want you to understand that the main character in all this is actually not Adam. Okay? It's not actually Eve either. It's not even the serpent who still roams about the earth looking for someone to devour. Oh no, it's not that old devil. The the main character in this narrative is none other than the Lord God Almighty. Likewise, the main takeaway from this narrative, the main point of this narrative is not necessarily how men fell. Though that's a huge part of it. But rather... It's how Yahweh God responded to the fall of man, okay? First of all, we notice Yahweh God is walking in this delightful garden, which we can only assume that he'd done before. It was nothing new for the man and woman to recognize this sound. Why, even Adam will say in verse 10, I heard that sound, that oh-so-familiar sound of you in the garden. Now, whether this is the, the pre-incarnate Christ walking in the garden, as we'll see with Abram in chapter 7, or some form of the Shekinah glory as Moses sees in Exodus uh, 3, we don't know. We're not told here. But it's clear that Yahweh God was walking in the garden. And this is amazing to consider, right? It's, it's amazing to even imagine that the creator of all things taking a stroll upon his creation alongside his creatures. This is incredible. Well, Moses writes this was taking place in the cool of the day. This is very interesting language there and strikingly similar to Yahweh God's words uh, to Adam back in chapter 2, verse 17. In the day you eat of the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. In the day, on that very day you eat of this tree dying, you shall surely die. Well, here comes Yahweh. Here he comes in the cool or the ruach or wind of the day. I can't even imagine what this looks like, nor nor is it appropriate to do so. Uh, But again, I just love the thought of our perfect creator wading through some tall grass or lilies or poppies planted atop the earth that he spoke into existence. I love the thought of the sound of the rustling of the leaves on the trees as he passes by them. Again, I don't know what this sounded like exactly, but Adam and Eve knew this sound, didn't they? And though there may have been a time when this sound of their perfectly beautiful and righteous and good and pure holy creator would have exhilarated their senses, would have caused them to be drawn in like magnets, even though 
That may have been true even moments before they consumed that fruit. It's at this moment that we actually see them fleeing from that sound, running away from that sound, eluding that sound, even hiding from that sound. Moses says in the second half of verse 8, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. That word for presence there actually means face. They hid themselves from the face of the Lord God in the midst of the tree. Sin causes a person to act irrationally at times, right? Sin clouds our judgment. It clouds our ability to respond logically at times, to think reasonably, to make wise decisions even. And there is perhaps no clearer illustration of irrational or illogical thinking than right here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. They hid themselves in the trees? You mean the trees that the Creator God just caused to sprout up from the earth? The ones that appeared out of nowhere at his very command, as he said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so, those trees, Adam, Uh, those beautiful trees in the beautiful garden he planted for you and your wife that he spoke into existence by his word alone, you're hiding in the trees that he made, in the places that he caused them to grow, Uh, Sin, it it clouds our judgment. It distorts reality. It destroys reason. As if we could ever hide from this infinitely omnipresent God who is always everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is all-present. He is all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful. You're going to hide from God? Nobody can hide from God, whether believer or unbeliever. He knows everything about you. He knows everything about you. He knows your actions, your words, even your thoughts. Did you know that? Did you know that he knows your thoughts? Do you know he knows what you're thinking right now? What are you thinking right now? I don't know. What am I thinking right now? You don't know either, but he knows. He knows everything. He sees everything. Always. He sees into the depths of our very hearts. And no tree or building or physical structure or dark alley or shadow will ever change that. We have to understand. Psalm 139, Oh Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my Ways. How many of my ways? That's right. All my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have put your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. That's the infinitude of God's knowledge. It's incomprehensible to us, mere finite human beings. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence, Adam and Eve? Maybe behind some trees? No, David says, absolutely not. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, like Jonah, when he tried to run away from the God, right? From the Lord, right? But he quickly found out, If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will bruise me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not too dark for you. The night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. The sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth is not constrained to operate within the same barriers that we are, okay? We're all subject to time and space and light and dark. We're dependent upon an outside source for food and water, even the air that we're breathing right now. But he is constrained by nothing, 
Uh, nor is he dependent upon anyone or anything outside of himself to sustain him. And he knows all things, all things in his creation. How ridiculous is it then that our first parents thought they could hide from the sovereign Lord of all behind his trees, in his garden, on his earth, residing within his heavens? It's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. But that's what we do, though, right? That's what we do. That's not even the really crazy part, though. Not only was it irrational and foolish of them to think they could elude the presence of an all-knowing God, but they were also running away from the only one who could help them in their disgraceful, sinful condition. They were running away from the only source of any potential redemption or reconciliation or restoration to pre-fall condition. They were fleeing potential deliverance, which we know will come for those whom God calls. Here we see two spiritually dead individuals running away from the only one who has the power to then offer them life. Again, it's like, it's like a doctor saying, Ooh, man, you better get that thing checked out. That looks like cancer. In fact, at this stage, you may not be around much longer. However, I have some good news. I have, I have some good news. There's hope. There's this drug. There's this procedure that can save you. It, it can cure you. All you have to do is come into my office and we'll talk about it, okay? It'd be like us running away from that doctor into our bedroom, closing the shades, jumping into our beds, hiding under our sheets because we don't want to hear the harsh reality that cancer is ravaging our body. Don't tell me that. You're offending me. In the same way, we run as the cancerous sin within us causes us to withdraw from our infinitely holy creator. Our sin causes us to hide from his presence. Uh, even though he's the only one who can effectively rid us of it. He's the only one who can rid us of the effects, who can rid us of the consequences. Our, our sin separates us from God as we're cut off from the light, cut off from the cure. Sin clouds the mind. It, it clouds our judgment. It, it causes us to behave irrationally. Think of Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. Man, this guy had it all, right? A loving family, servants, an inheritance. But he bought the lie which said he deserved even more, so he pursued the lusts of his flesh, the lusts of his eyes, and the pride of life. Same temptations Adam and Eve faced with this fruit, by the way. Same thing. The fruit was Good for food. It was good for the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, pleasing to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. And we all deserve that, right? That's pride. We deserve nothing. Well, the son, he wanted to get his too, so he no doubt indulged in lavish foods and wild sex and raging parties. I'm sure he was the big man on campus for a season. I'm sure he had all kinds of friends around him at this point, all kinds of admirers clinging to him at this point. Jesus said he left his father behind. I'm going, I'm going out here, Pop. I don't need you. Went out to live recklessly, spent all his inheritance. He bought the lie of sin only to find himself in the pig pen, literally, eating the slop of the swine. Sin and the temptation to sin caused him to flee from, from the light, from what he knew he, was, he knew was good and right. And ultimately, it led him into a pit of despair. But that's human nature. That's what we do. It's who we are. We hide from the face of our Lord. And it's going to be that way till the very end. Did you know that? To the very end. John tells us in the Revelation, just as the tribulation period really starts to kick off, he says, the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And these will say to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us, 
Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who is able to stand? Fall on us. Hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne. From the beginning to the end. Sinful men and women hiding from the presence of the Lord God, the Almighty. What a disgraceful sight this is in the garden, isn't it? Isn't it disgraceful? But remember, Adam ultimately isn't the focal point of this account. Here's where I want you to see the magnificent character and nature of your creator on full display. Look at verse 9. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Notice here, no hailstones of fire, no soul-trembling earthquakes, no peals of thunder and sounds of flashes of lightning as he walked through this garden. There were no legions of the heavenly host trailing behind the Lord as he prepared to tread the winepress of the wrath of his rage upon these two pathetic, cowering creatures. He wasn't even running in the garden. He was walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, as he called to Adam and said, where are you? Now again, he's not trying to gain information here, right? He knows exactly where Adam and Eve are, doesn't he? They're right over there, behind that tree. (laughs) He can see them there, clear as day, in their itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, green and fig-leaf string bikinis. He's not looking for Adam here. He knows exactly where Adam is. This is is him asking Adam directly, where are you? Think about it, Adam. Think about where you are right now. Think about what you're doing. Think about why you're hiding from me. Where are you? Tell me, Adam, tell me why you and your wife are where you are. This goes way beyond just their geographical location or their physical location. It's actually God saying, where are you in relation to me? And don't miss the grace in his asking this question. Don't miss the fact that God would have been absolutely justified in breaking through those clouds peeling back the very sky itself, looking down and saying, I told you not to eat from that tree. And now you die. Two carcasses on the ground just like that, eternal souls in everlasting hell. They're everlasting souls in eternal hell. He would have been perfectly justified in doing that, perfectly within his rights and ability to do just that, but instead... He comes in gentleness. He he comes in tenderness, condescending to this disgraceful, sinful man and saying, Adam, where are you? Where are you? Now, perhaps he's asking some of you here this morning the same question. Where are you? Where are you? Verse 10 gives us a a glimpse of the things to come, not only in our passage, but for sinful man throughout the ages, even up to and including today. Instead of Adam just saying, oh, right over here, listen, I I am so sorry, I ate from that tree. You know, uh, instead of, Adam just telling God the truth, which God already knows, by the way, Adam starts digging himself a deeper hole. Look at verse 10. Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You were coming to see me. I heard you, and I got scared. This is the first mention of fear in the Bible, by the way. Fear is the opposite of faith. Paul says, the spirit of fear is not from God, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, 
but of power and love and self-discipline. In fact, all good things come from God. James says he's the giver of all good things, all good gifts, gifts which do not include irrational and sinful fear. The giver of all good things? That doesn't sound like someone we should, we should be afraid of. Oh, make no mistake, he should be feared, reverentially speaking. We finite creatures ought to have a reverential awe and terror of the magnificent power of the Lord God the Almighty, but not in a sinful way. We shouldn't flee from him or hide from him or dread him. That type of reaction only comes from those who hate God because they know they'll be exposed by God. He'll shine a light upon their true character, which the rest of us humans can't really see all the time, right? This is the reaction of much of mankind, including the kings at the end of the world who would love their own sin more than they love their creator. And Adam, who says, I heard you coming, and I was fearful. I was afraid of you. Why? Because of my guilt and my shame, my disgraceful condition. In other words, because I was naked on the outside and then dead on the inside. I am naked. And then again, God's graciousness on full display in verse 11. Again, he could have said, nonsense, Adam. This has nothing to do with your being naked physically. You've been naked your whole life. You're hiding because you're a rotten little creep who ate of that tree. Blatantly disobeying my command. Get real. Boom. Dead. Two, two dead carcasses on the ground. Two eternal, everlasting souls in eternal hell. He could have done that. He could have easily done that. Just like he could have done it to all of us the very moment we sinned against him. And nobody could have refuted his just nature in the process. But that's not what happens in verse 11. Look what happens in verse 11. God says... Who told you that you were naked? Again, we asked last week, how do you even know what being naked means? I formed you from the dust, but I didn't give you a duster jacket. I created you in a short amount of time, in an instant, but I didn't create you wearing shorts. You've been frolicking around this place this whole time in your birthday suit. Ever since I breathed the breath of life into your nostrils, you've never known anything else, Adam. But now you guys know you're naked? Who told you that you were naked? You see what this is? It's God trying to draw Adam out of these trees, not push him away by force, right? Do you see this? He didn't come to Adam in anger. He came with a sincere desire to make Adam understand why he was in the position he was in. Adam, I know the answer to these questions. I know everything. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God knows Adam ate. He knows it. Just like he knows how Adam knows that he's naked. Just like he knows exactly where Adam is behind those trees. But again, he wants Adam to say it. You tell me. You you confess your sin to me. And then repent of your sin. Ask for my forgiveness. That's what this is all about. God knows all the answers to all the questions. But he wants to hear us say it. That's what he wants. One commentator said, The basic reluctance of sinful people to admit their iniquity is here established. Repentance is still the issue. When sinners refuse to repent, they suffer judgment. When they do repent... They receive forgiveness. This is a matter of confession and repentance. And God's saying, do you agree with me that you are who I know and who I say that you are, Adam? Well, people hate that. Oh, they hate it because they feel like it's an attack attack on their character. They don't want to be told this. They don't see this for what it truly is, namely the mercy of God. It's a mercy that he asked this of Adam. God, in his graciousness, his steadfast mercy, is trying to get Adam to acknowledge his transgression for himself so that 
that the, the healing and restoration process can then begin. It needs to begin there, though. Adam, it's time. Adam, where are you? Adam, who told you that you were naked? Adam, did you eat from that tree which I commanded you not to eat? Just tell me. Just tell me. Any parent in here knows this. We've, we've, we've all interacted with our kids in similar fashion when, when they've sinned and we've confronted them on it. We, we know our kids did it. We know the details of their doing it. We may have even seen them doing it with our own eyes, and we've said it. I've said it personally many times. Just tell me what happened. Just tell me. If you don't tell me or if you lie, the consequences, the penalty is going to be more severe than if you just tell me, right? I know you've said this to your kids. <laughs> You'll get in less trouble if, you, if you're just straight up. Just, just tell me. What, what were you thinking? What were you doing? What happened? What happened? And everything inside of you, you just wants them to be honest. Just be honest. Because we know it will then actually lead to a great opportunity to give them the gospel of grace and forgiveness. I don't know how many times in my life, to my kids, I've said, well, when I was young, I, yeah, I know what you're, you're thinking about. Just tell me the truth. We can get past this now. He'd, we give them the gospel of his grace. This is his mercy. It's his mercy. As he says to us, I know your heart. I know your heart. Just, just agree with me concerning its natural condition and then let me go to work on it. Let me heal it. It's his mercy. The all-knowing God asks Adam, did you eat from that tree, Adam? What does Adam say? Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from the tree and I ate fail. That's a fail. All he had to say was those last three words. And I ate. We spent almost an hour last week talking about the three little words, and he ate. All he has to do here is say, yes, I ate. But instead, he does what our kids do, what we all do. God, have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Adam, uh, uh, mm. Um, you know, you remember that time when it was just you and me in the garden and there were the animals there and I was naming the animals? You remember that? I was naming them. We were just hanging out. We had some good times together, right, Lord? Right up until the moment you knocked me out. You did some cosmic rib surgery on me and then, well, you know who came along. You know, Eve, this woman you gave me. And you know what? God, this is just the, the darndest thing. And she had this idea of us being like you. And you know how much I look up to you, right? <laughs> and, and well, you know, if you wouldn't have made her, we'd have still been good, right? But yeah, I mean, because of all that, yeah, I, I guess I did eat it. Yeah. Yeah, I ate it. Then God, again, graciously, mercifully, I'd say, looks at Eve and says, what is this you have done? Just tell me. Just tell me the truth, Eve. And then the woman, who we see is a very quick learner, follows the lead of her head and says, well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. Well, ultimately, it's this guy's fault. And that's when the sentencing began. That's, this is the moment when S. Lewis Johnson said, Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the serpent, and the serpent wouldn't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> no, this is very serious. Uh, serious because we've all been there at some point, right? Some are still there at this point. Where there's just something inside of us, something within us that just refuses to accept personal responsibility for our own actions. It's like we're incapable of just saying, yeah, I ate it. I, I 
did this. I acted this way. I caused this pain. I made these remarks. I hurt this person. I fell short. I fell very short. In fact, I failed miserably in this area. I have sinned against you, and more importantly, I have sinned against God, and I am sorry. Oh, to hear those words and counseling is such a joy. Instead, it's typically, well, she does this, or he acts like that, or, you know, my father treated me like this, or my mother acted like this. It was my upbringing. It's their fault. Or, well, it's just in my DNA. It's just in my genes. It's who I am. It's what I've always known. Or my boss. You know, my boss is really hard on me. You know who's to blame ultimately? The Democrats. (laughs) The Republicans. The president. If we just had this person in office, I wouldn't be so upset all the time. But everything around me is wrong. That's why I'm depressed. That's why I'm anxious and irritable and angry. That's why I blow up all the time. That's why I drink. That's why I gamble. That's why I look at porn. That's why I act like this. It's my parents' fault. It's my wife's fault. It's the kids' fault. It's my employer's fault. It's the church's fault. It's the elder's fault that I am the way I am. It's because of my circumstances, my environment, my upbringing. That's the sinner's anthem. Lady Gaga put it best. Baby, I was born this way. Right? That's another way of saying, God made me like this. God created me to live my life in a matter a manner that he abhors, that he detests. He did it. Ultimately, it's God's fault that I am the way that I am. That's what that song means. Actually, it's anyone's fault but mine. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. Tell me I'm wrong. It ain't the Democrats. Martin Luther, some 400 years ago, commenting on this progressive nature of sin, said, let us learn then, four or 500, uh, that this perversion and stupidity always accompanies sin and that sinners accuse themselves by their excuses and betray themselves by their defense, especially before God. This is the true nature of sin, he said. Unless God immediately provides a cure and calls the sinner back, he flees endlessly from God and, by excusing his sin with lies, heaps sin upon sin until he arrives at blasphemy and despair. It's lies, liars. Thus, sin, by its own gravitation, always draws with it another sin and brings on eternal destruction until finally the sinful person would rather accuse God than acknowledge his own sin. Adam should have said, Lord, I have sinned, but he does not do this. He accuses God of sin and says in reality, Thou, Lord, hast sinned. For I would have remained holy in paradise after eating of the fruit if thou hadst kept quiet. Shut up and let me be me, God. It's a, it's a natural reaction of sinful man and woman to deflect and to shift blame to others, to our circumstances, to our environment, to our upbringing. But I, again, I, I ask you to consider the circumstances, environment, and upbringing of Adam. It was all perfect. That's why we said two months ago, Adam can't blame his environment for his own sin. It was perfect. It was a perfect environment. He had a perfect wife, perfect government, perfect job. Most importantly, he had perfect communion with the perfect God. And yet, he fell. He failed. And Eve was so quick to say, well, it was Satan. Satan made me do it. This is the classic defense of every depraved nut job throughout the history of the world. Satan made me do it. Oh, get over yourself. I mean, he's a part of it, sure. But don't forget, at the end of the world, he'll he'll be bound for a thousand years and people will still rebel against God and his Christ who reigns supreme from the throne in Jerusalem. Always Satan is nowhere to be found. It's not Satan. We don't need Satan to sin. 
It's not our wives, it's not our husbands, or our parents, or our bosses, or our circumstances. Yes, some contribute to the anguish, make no mistake, I understand that. Some don't help the situation, but the the problem is us. The problem is me. I'm the problem. That's what God wants to hear. The problem is me, not God because God's perfect. It's me who is the problem. I did it. I took that fruit from her hand. I put it to my mouth. I ate it. I ate it. it, it and, and I'm sorry that I ate it. I, I'm sorry, but knowing me, I'll probably do it again tomorrow. But I don't want to. And I'm praying, Lord, that you will give me strength to turn from it and to be more like you. Is that so difficult? Answer, yes. (laughs) That's a good answer. It's difficult because it's who we are. Adam... Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? How much better if Adam would have not run from, but run toward God in the garden, if he would have just fell on his face before the Lord and all his shame and guilt and total transparency regarding his total depravity and total inability and said, oh Lord, I did the only thing you told me not to do. I am so sorry. I have failed my probation. I failed my wife. I failed my children to come. And I brought sin and death into your perfect creation and I blew it for everybody. But I am so sorry. How much better would it have been if he, he, he would have just said, I'm so sorry, it's my fault. Please don't kill me. Please forgive me. Please have mercy on me, O oh Lord. Please change my heart so I don't do it again. How much better? Well, how much better then if you or I, knowing what we know, do the same thing initially and consistently throughout our Christian life. Right? It's amazing. The moment that prodigal son sitting in the slop of the pig pen, the slime of the swine, eating the husks and the, sitting in the mud, all of a sudden comes to his senses. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. You know what I'll do? I'll rise up. I'll go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. That's humility, uh, which is even lacking from so many professing Christians today, by the way. We call them Arminians. As has been said, those who feel they're basically good, but just need a little bit of God's help to be great, right? But that's what the prodigal did. He had humility. He rose up, came to his father. I am not worthy to be called your son. I am not worthy to be called your son. In your power, make me one of your slaves, He rose up, he came, he confessed, he repented, he turned from his sin, he turned from his wickedness, he turned to his father. And look what Jesus says of the father. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him and kissed him. My brothers and sisters, may we not languish in the misery and pits of unconfessed and unrepentant sin any longer than we have to. He knows our thoughts. He knows our inclinations. He knows the motivations of our hearts. He knows that we're desperately wicked. He he knows that we're totally depraved, even if we don't want to admit it. It's so much better, though, to just agree with him that we are who he says we are and say, yeah, you got me. That's me. 
I'm as hopeless as you say I am, but I want the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Oh, Lord, make me your slave. You're going to have to do it, though, because I don't have the ability. I don't have the power to do it in my own nature. Deliver me from the bondage, O Lord, and enslavement to my own sin, and make me or cause me to be a slave of righteousness. Instead, we tend to double down, right? Even triple down. It's crazy. It's madness. It's sin. It's sin. But there is a cure. And it's only found by those who come to the Lord, only those whom the Lord calls to himself and draws to himself. Are you one of those? How do you know? You know because you hear his voice calling you through his word. You know because you believe in the promise of his cure. You believe his promise of the one who would come into this world, not born of Adam's seed, not inheriting Adam's original corrupted sinful nature, but rather one who would be born of a woman, the seed who we'll hear about over these next couple of weeks. You know because you trust in his gospel of grace. You know because unlike Adam, you hear and believe and then obey his word because he's your Lord, he's your master. You believe his word, including the difficult parts, like what it says about us in our natural condition. You know because even after he heals you by grace through faith, you continue to confess and repent of your sin as you continue to fall short of his glory. Which you know because you now hate the things that he hates and love the things that he loves. And you depend on him and him alone to inform transform and conform you into the image of his son. You know because instead of hiding from God, you're hiding in God. Is that true of you this morning? Are you hiding from God this morning? Or are you hiding in God this morning? Are you here this morning running from God because of your guilt and your sin and your shame, or you're running toward God, knowing that he and he alone has the power to deliver you from it. Well, I'm here to tell you it's time to stop running. It's time to stop hiding from him. Nobody in this room can say he hasn't been long-suffering with us. The fact that you're here this morning, that you're even here Listening to his word, listening to his gospel is evidence of the amazing grace that's been extended to you personally. I ask you then, how will you respond to this grace? How, do you, how will you respond to this? Will you continue to run from him? Will you continue to hide yourself in the, in the trees and shadows of this evil and corrupted world system, the shadows of your own deceitful heart? Or will you respond by turning from this world and sprinting toward your creator? He cries out to your soul this moment, where are you? Where are you? I bid you come to him. Your creator waits with open arms, ready, willing, able to forgive you of all of your transgressions. He bid you come to him today. He said it. The cure himself said it. The seed of the woman himself said it just a short time before he was crucified, buried, raised to life on the third day, right before his agonizingly painful, sacrificial death on a Roman cross for sinners like you and like me, all who would believe in him and call upon his name. He said it. He said, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. He bids you come to him today. Behold, now is the appointed time. Behold, today is the day of your salvation. 
if you would but come to him, if you would but confess your sin, all of it. He knows it anyways. He knows all of it anyways. So pray it and agree with him. Confess it to him. Ask him to forgive you of it, to cleanse you, to wash you as white as snow. Ask him to remove the stain of sin and shame and guilt, to remove the fear of death and the the bonds that enslave you to your own sin nature in this evil, corrupted world system. Ask him to enable you through the power of his spirit to flee from that sin, to turn from that sin, to spend the rest of your spirit and dwelled life on this earth confessing your sin and turning from your sin. For we know that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Ask him to grant you eternal life in that presence where there will no longer be any curse, that place where we will see his face. Not hide from his face, but see his face. Ask him to make it this true view this morning. He's been gracious to us, has he not? Well, don't forsake his gracious long-suffering for another moment. Instead, along with the hymnist, sing out with all sincerity Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I pray that you would hear his voice this morning, that you would answer his call and cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ this very moment. And if you have any questions about what that looks like, you come talk to me or one of the other elders after the service. But for now, let's give our long-suffering Lord praise and honor and adoration for the amazing grace that's been extended to all of us this morning. Amen? Amen. Have Noel and the others come up. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace. The grace of being able to find refuge in you our mighty fortress, our solid rock, the rock of ages. What a joy, what a privilege it is that we have the ability even to sing this song to you because of what's been done for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. We're so undeserving, but we recognize that. We, we admit it. We admit that it took you doing a mighty work in our hearts to regenerate our hearts, to transform our hearts, to give us whole new hearts and new natures so that we can adequately live for your glory and your glory alone. I pray that you would do the same for anyone here whom you are calling. At this moment, you would save their soul as you are worthy of their praise as well as ours. But it's a delight to give it to you, Lord, and we do so now. In Jesus' name, amen.